Well, our launch has finally arrived. Welcome to the Perrant Favel Generation X podcast. Join hosts Kim Perrant and Corey Favel as they pull back the curtain on life growing up in the NHL. Each week, we will host different guests from throughout the NHL world. We are so excited to kick off episode one with sports broadcasting Hall of Fame announcer Doc Emmerich. How you doing, gang? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> How are you? Excellent. Yeah, good to see you. There is a strong family resemblance to both of you. <laughs> oh, Corey? Me, Doc? Doc, me, Corey. <laughs> yeah, hi. That's wonderful. Uh, nice to meet you, Mr. Emmerich. <laughs> nice to meet you. Just call me Doc, Doc or Mike, whichever. He Perfect. does look just like his dad, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah he sure does. <laughs> Back when he was 20. That's <laughs> <laughs> Last okay. time I saw you was in the middle of the Oscar Strong campaign yeah. at Hockey yep. Night in Canada. I still have my T-shirt. Yay! As a matter of fact, yeah. I was going on no fumes that night. We had I'll bet twenty four seven of no sleep and no food, basically. Oh no, you were very committed, and uh, it's nice to see he's back and he's uh, and he's rolling along wonderfully. Oh, he's doing great! Wish, it's so the, beautiful. The team, yeah, yeah. The, the team is having its issues, but Oscar is not. Exactly. He'll take his health over a winning team any day. Yeah, I under yeah, I understand. <laughs> Kim, do you wanna you wanna start off? I know you had a couple yeah, questions. Yeah, well, I mean, I never knew you were from Indiana. Like I just I never knew that. So it's just so crazy coming from you know, the Midwest like that to become getting so big in ho the hockey world. Like, how did that even happen? Yeah. Yes. Uh, they, uh, there was a team in Fort Wayne, Indiana called the Comets, and there still is to this day. They arrived in 1952. Uh, I arrived in the hospital maternity ward in 1946. So uh, I was six when they arrived, and I was 14 when I got to see my first live game. And that was what hooked me on hockey, uh, seeing the Fort Wayne Comets play. There were only two arenas in Indiana in the 19, early 1950s. One was the Fairgrounds Coliseum in Indianapolis, and the other was, was the new Allen County Coliseum in Fort Wayne. So I was lucky. We were about 45 miles away from that, and I got to see my first game. And uh, up until then, I wanted to be a baseball announcer, but it changed as soon as I saw the live game first. So that was it, and it was just a question of how on earth does somebody from rural Indiana get a chance to be an NHL announcer? It took a lot of years and a lot of knocking on doors and sending out tapes, but it finally happened. And fortunately for me, the first uh, NHL games I ever got to do were in Philadelphia right. 40 years ago. Yeah, which which I love that. I mean, that's where... You know, we know you from because you're just you're our home guy for so long. Now, Gene Hart, did you know who he was? Were you oh, aware yes. of him? Was he inspirational to you? Like, yes, the great Gene, Gene I, Hart. Yeah, Gene and I traveled to games. We lived about uh, 10, 15 blocks apart in Cherry Hill. Okay. Um, I arrived in 1980, and Gene was doing over the air television and home radio when a television company called Prism mm -hmm. uh, was doing pay cable of home games. And Pete Silverman was the broadcaster there. He was also producing the games and he wanted to have somebody that could do the play-by-play -play of Prism games while Gene was doing radio of the home games. And then Gene, of course, did over the air uh, television and radio simulcasting whenever the team was away from home. So uh, I was uh, very fortunate to have not only arrived at a time when Gene was still here, 
but to have uh, ridden to him with games and, and gotten an awful lot of mentorship from Gene during those early years in the early 1980s. But yes, he was a legend. He had a marvelous hold on the public. The public loved Gene. He loved the public and he loved the Flyers. And the Flyers mm -hmm. in that era uh, were, uh, were a marvelous team to follow. Uh, they have had um, hills and valleys since that time. But they were kissing, you know, they were consistently a competitive team during those years. Yeah, they I mean, talk about two greats together, the two of you. Like that's just you know, two voices that will always be synonymous with the game of hockey. So and you're from Philly, so we're or started in Philly, so we're pretty lucky there. <laughs> yes, Windsor Park in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Just okay. off just off Chapel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean we're you know, we I was old we all grew up in Cherry Hill then. We all lived yeah. there. So. It seemed like a lot of the players did that too. Yeah. Um, many because the practice rink was accessible and the Walt Whitman Bridge was very, very uh, quick to get to from yeah. that point too. Before they all started moving into the city. Yeah. And now they're all over in like Rittenhouse Square area. But um, and that that brings me to another question. Do you have a favorite memory of the spectrum or announcing there or an event or something that happened while you were there? Well, a lot of them. Uh, I think obviously the first time you ever get to do a National Hockey League game. And it was a preseason game in the fall of 1980 on Prism between the Flyers and the Montreal Canadiens. And. Bobby Taylor and Ed Van Imp, those great flyers that won two Stanley Cups together in the mid-70s, they were my broadcast partners. And, of course, they, they made sure that the rookie got his baptism, and they, they of course, kidded me no end about everything that happened, which was part of the fun of it all. But I was, I was really lucky in that not everybody wore helmets then, and it was the last preseason game. And so all of the cuts had been made. And so the guys that went to the final for the Montreal Canadiens were all the guys in the lineup. And uh, wow. they were easily recognizable to me. And the Clark Barber Leach combination was still playing. And so uh, lots of things that were very consistent with the team I'd watched on television uh, was still there then. So that made it easy. Yeah. How did you? I mean, you announce, you know, everybody's name. <laughs> <laughs> You've done Olympics and knew everyone's name. You pronounce them correctly. Like that, it just blows my mind. Like how, like well, is that just I, a secret talent you have? <laughs> no, I think anyone could commit themselves to doing it if uh, they made that the main thing in their life. Identifying players is the number one thing that you do. And um, uh, uh, you could probably appreciate this too, Corey, and perhaps your father could. Uh, I always pretended that the boss was sitting in the stands down below with a small bag of money. And if after the evening was over, I walked down the steps uh, and I got most of it right, uh, he would hand me the small bag. It was uh, it was a motivation, <laughs> I, I like guess. That. But, wow. but it, it was also the motivation to get them right. And the other thing, too, is it seems like it's very difficult, but it's like Neither of you have gone to a movie a second time if you really like the first one. And the characters are the same. And in hockey, the characters may be the same. The plot may change. But identifying them uh, is much easier the second time you've seen them than the first. And we still don't have that much 
uh, change over each year, that there aren't more than five or six guys on each team that you have to learn. Players go back and forth, but oftentimes, especially the star players with the high numbers, they keep the same number despite the fact that they change teams. So I appreciate your noticing uh, <laughs> my, my ability to, to pick them out, but I think anyone who really concentrated on it could do that. Yeah, well, so many of them are hard to pronounce. I mean, you take it to the Olympics, there's so many Russians, and so I don't know, I find that very impressive. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, the, the. I remember there was one that seemed to always be a problem with Sergei Krivokrasov, who played for the Blackhawks. And you just, I was glad first of all that he didn't have a brother uh, that was on the same line, and that he didn't move the puck around too fast because that would be a little bit much. Yeah. <laughs> I think that leads into something Corey wanted to ask you about too, with the um, change of the years with your broadcasting and all that. What was? Yeah, first off, I you know when you're from Indiana, and I I didn't even put two and two together. The Fort Wayne Comets. Bruce Boudreaux's son is the head coach right now. Benny Boudreaux's coach in the Fort Wayne Comets. So when you mention that, it's like wow, there's a there's a connection. I love I love the Fort Wayne Comets, and uh, they're in good hands. And I think Bruce Boudreaux actually played with the Fort Wayne Comets back in the day. So yeah, anyway. you're you're absolutely right. And Bruce yeah. uh, Bruce was coaching, uh, and and now his son coaches the team. And the last time I checked, they'd been playing over a month, and they'd had only one regulation time loss. So they've yeah. had a very good start to their year. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I'm I'm rooting for Ben. Yeah, <laughs> um, good. <laughs> anyway, um, I I train a lot of um, elite junior players going into major junior, and I always advise them. You know, the game's changed a little bit. From there isn't the Patrick Marlowe's, there isn't the the you know the twenty year careers. So we focus on yeah three four year career and have something to fall back on. Is that something? If someone's getting into broadcasting, uh, do you find now that there's a changeover in the broadcasting kind of as you know they they transition players a lot? I know you're you know into your retirement this year, but is is this kind of a, a perfect time um, to make that transition? And for people coming up, do you see you know in the future is there still forty years you know careers for broadcasters? Well, uh, the landscape has changed on all of that from the time I started until the time I finished. For example, um, NHL has just signed an extensive agreement uh, for seven years with ESPN that includes a lot of streaming games. And uh, people that are your age and younger in particular are, are oftentimes streaming games, either audio or audio plus video. And so that part of it has changed a great deal. It still comes down to a team uh, being involved in the hiring of announcers. And even though tastes change, fortunately, those of us who get jobs that are affiliated with teams, whether they hire us or not, hold on to them for dear life. I was fortunate to stay 18 consecutive years with New Jersey. But um, those sorts of long-term things are, are sort of rare, I think, now, because rights agreements change a lot. And because because of the changing agreements between teams and television companies or streaming companies, uh, sometimes they have their own announcers that they want to bring in. So in answer to your question, it sure helps to have something that you can do in addition to uh, broadcasting sports. 
And it never hurts, uh, even though there's no college degree requirement for this kind of work, it never hurts to have that in that it may enable you to do something else while you're hoping for another job. We all get fired at one time or other. Yeah. We all are between jobs at one time or other. And yeah. so having something to fall back on is a very good precaution to have. Yeah. And I think you're, Corey, I think you're, you're uh, advising your people well uh, to have them know that going in. Yeah. Well, thanks, Doc. No, that's 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 great advice and 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 uh, great information. Leading into, um, I've done some work with uh, Tim Peel. I've known Tim Peel, and we bring up the the hot mic. Is that something now? Everything is mic'd up. Everything's on video. Everything's mic'd up. Everyone I've talked to, some former refs, and he, you know, he got caught. Is that something now? You know, is, are people more aware of that with broadcasting, players on the ice? Um, it kind of affects, you're always the liaison between the player and the fan. Um, is that something you guys are, you know, you really have to watch what you say? You really have to, you know, is that something now that, you know. You sure, and the, the thing is there's no eraser on your tongue. Um, were he to have it to do over again, of course, he, he would have probably kept kept that to himself, even though he might have been thinking it, and how many officials back through the years of various sports have thought the same thing, uh, because we have come through a period of time where there was a one referee system where at one time in this league there were only six teams and there were only four referees, and there was no supervision of them. And one of those referees, Bill Chadwick, once told me that he had to literally fight his way out of arenas because they had no help. Uh, it was just a referee and two linesmen, and they might have security. They did not have supervision unless they were in Montreal, and Clarence Campbell, the president of the league, attended the game. That was the only supervision that they had. So it's gone through that era to now where those of us that are in broadcasting, our people to pick up the sounds of collisions and all of that. We have mics all around the glass uh, down near the bench area. And so the law of averages for something like that to happen have gone up uh, by, by leaps and bounds over the recent years. And it's uh, a sad thing for a credible official like he was over all the years to have that happen. But you also yeah. understand how the league can't, uh, uh, how the league can't have something public that might have been private, but just wound <laughs> up becoming that. So uh, I'm sad for Tim, and he's had a number of people that are, that are players that have come to his defense after that because they, they realize, and I think hockey players back through uh, to your father's eras yeah. realize that referees managed games back then. They couldn't call everything, and I've had several of the 1970s flyers say, thank God they couldn't call everything or we would have never been at full strength in any of our games. Right. We'd, have been in, we'd have been in the box all night. So yeah. there, there is a balance that needs yeah. to be struck. But you're right. Uh, it's just one of those things that, um, that was audible. And yeah, that's it. I um, feel like, real quick on that, that um, it's when you go back to the days of our dads, even the early, you know, 80s and 90s, they could basically get away with a lot more just living their lives outside of the rink, where now... There's phones, there's cameras, like guys, you know, it's just, it's it's a whole different world that life away from the rink has kind of taken away that privacy because you have to really watch what you're doing and saying all mm -hmm. the time. 
Yes. Uh, the, the flyers of the 70s, if they got in any trouble at all, it was visible inside of rinks. And I'll never forget Bobby Taylor, of course, and all those times that he and I worked together. And he's still doing broadcasting down in Tampa yeah. with the lightning. Um, he was jailed one night in Vancouver. Oh, uh, it was it was meet the fans night, if you know what I mean. Uh, and and they uh, a fan wrongly accused. Of course, this is Bobby telling a story wrongly accused him of striking a fan. Uh, and he maintained it was Cowboy Flood who did it. But, of course, he didn't do that publicly because you always backed up and protected teammates. Uh, but Bobby uh, actually did a little bit of time uh, before they sprung him from jail. Uh, his, his, uh, he said he was incarcerated with, uh, to use his words, an old hippie. <laughs> and so he, he, found, he found the time very amusing. Uh, but nobody likes to be in jail, and so he no. <laughs> especially hauled off in a hockey uniform. So that was one of the stories. And, of course, Gil Stein, who was president of the Flyers at one time, was also legal counsel for the team and had to uh, fly off to Toronto because of some of the uh, malfeasance. Uh, your fathers were not involved. However, some of the members of the team were involved in in a, uh, a number of brouhaha's in a playoff series with the Maple Leafs. But uh, you're right. Those were different times. And if anything happened that made public awareness, it was always something inside the rink that was clearly visible and followed up on by mm -hmm. reporters. The things outside just didn't fly. Well, Bobby yeah. Taylor is one of the last ones I would have thought ever spent time in jail. <laughs> yeah, he, he never struck you as the kind of guy who would do that. No. And, and, and of course, he maintains that he was wrongfully accused, <laughs> that it was actually one of his teammates that had that had socked the fan. But anyway, uh, uh, they got they, they got it all straightened out. And, and uh, somehow or other, you would have imagined that either Fred Shiro or general manager Keith Allen would have been like uh, like the general manager of the Charlestown Chiefs, who, who would have gone forward and say, I would just I would like the bail a little bit lower. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, Doc, have you ever had a situation where, you know, you've had to get escorted out or has somebody called you out on, 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 on a play that you called or something you said? Um, no, nothing, nothing that was very dramatic at all. No. There, there are always people that uh, that may disagree with you, but most of the time they do it privately. And once in a while, they'll say something, you know, to you. Yeah. Uh, but no, nothing, nothing that flamboyant. <laughs> I was fortunate. I was I was around winning teams a lot in my life when I was doing games that were not network games. Uh, because I spent time in the early 80s in Philadelphia. The latter 80s, uh, Bill Clement and I were together for four of the five years that I was under contract, Gary Dornhoff, for the last year. And the Flyers weren't very good then. But in the early 80s, they were. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the main Mariners that preceded them, uh, won championships two of the first three years. And then with New Jersey, I was there for 18 consecutive years after the three bad ones where they weren't very good. And they won three titles and they were always a, a well over 500 team almost every year. So I've been lucky. And I talked to the great uh, hockey uh, baseball announcer, Ernie Harwell, when I was doing my doctoral dissertation. And he said that he always got more negative mail when the team was bad <laughs> than when the team was good. Uh, it's just... <laughs> 
every everything piles up and and everything comes to you when when you're with a team that's having a bad season well you sound like a good luck charm so uh, no i just rode the coattails of some very good players when you arrive in philly and you've got the lcb line playing yeah it's pretty uh, darn good line yeah, yeah you're pretty fortunate how about uh, memories of our dads both of our dads uh, anything that stands out to you Doug Favell was the first guy that I knew, and this was even before Jerry Cheevers put stitches on his on his mask. He was the first guy I knew to ever paint his mask. He did it for Halloween one year. He painted it just like a pumpkin. He painted it bright orange because he was with the Flyers. And I can't remember whether he won the game. Isn't it awful? You should know whether you, whether you try something like that, you win with it or not. But yeah. there were plaster cast masks back then, which entailed an awful lot of sacrifice on the part of a goaltender because you had to lie still while they poured this plaster over you and you had to breathe through straws in your mouth and then it would harden and fit the contours of your face. It didn't really protect you too much, but that was the era in which both of your fathers uh, yeah. came through, but I'll never forget that. And of course, um, uh, Bernie Perrant, not only the glory years that I watched him on television play for the Flyers, but also he was a part of getting our Maine Mariners kicked off because we, in Maine, we had, uh, we had two large French American communities, uh, Saco and Lewiston. And we, Gilstein conceived a Mariners caravan and Jean Beliveau from the Montreal Canadiens and Bernie Perrant from the Flyers joined Bobby Clark from the Flyers. And when you have two French Canadian legends mm -hmm speaking French to French Canadian hockey fans in the state of Maine, you have accomplished something magnificent. And that's what those two gentlemen did. And of course, that was the first time I got to be around, uh, around Kim's father. Um, I never knew that personally. Story. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, there was a picture, as a matter of fact, of Bobby Clark, Bernie Perrant, and Jean Beliveau all wearing black Maine Mariners t-shirts with the logo and the orange dot in the really? middle, just like the, wow. yeah. Uh -huh. And and of course, the Nova Scotia Voyagers, who were the primary farm team of the Montreal Canadiens, said, we've been trying to get Jean Beliveau to come to Nova Scotia for years, and here he is <laughs> down promoting our chief rival in Portland. <laughs> but that's what Gil Stein was able to do working with uh, Sam Pollock, who well, was my, in charge my dad, of the Canadiens. My dad didn't get much... Um opportunity not at home or anything to speak french so you know he, he's, yeah, he, he's lost it over the years we have a little rusty well he was wonderful that day i was yeah. a, a privileged witness as a mariners employee to see how the fans thrilled him marcel pelche who had been with the flyers for a number of years spoke french to them too and uh, it was truly a, a reach that succeeded the portland area was largely uh, english speaking but those two communities were heavily french speaking and to be able to show them that there was a hockey team that was going to be in portland that understood uh, all about that. That was that was a big step. Yeah, that's very cool. That's awesome. And Doc, yeah, sorry, ahead, I just to, um, my dad, Doc, my dad and Jerry Cheevers uh, are very close friends, and they grew up. Cheevers was a lacrosse player as well, and so they <clears throat> they golf a lot in Florida, and they still bicker over over the masks, <laughs> the, the stitches, and the painting. 
And my dad tells Cheesy all the time, he says, you didn't take that many shots to the body, let alone the face. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they still they still bug each other about that. So I was surprised that when he started putting the stitches on that they didn't turn out to be the names of winning horses that he had bet <laughs> on because he was a very big horse player and probably still is. He still is, yep. 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 So, <laughs> that's awesome. Before well, we go, I want to yep. ask you a quick question. When I saw you last, you uh, mentioned something about um when my dad got inducted to the hall of fame did you have um did you say you nominated him there was something here was uh joe cadillac whose uh contribution to the flyers for 40 years is is often unheralded um mm-hmm. came to me and and he said uh, i'm trying to put this uh nomination letter together for bernie perron to the hall of fame uh, and so Joe, Joe and I worked together on it. Uh, I can't take credit for much of it. It was Joe's idea. And I think he probably placed it with one of the 18 members of the selection committee. Look, it wasn't going to be hard. Mm-hmm. All they had to do was go through the formality of nominating him. Uh, but you have to nominate someone before they can enter the Hall of Fame. And so this was a, a part of what I had a hand in, but not very much. Uh, it was going to be a first ballot selection uh, without any trouble, although I wasn't at the meeting. I did serve my 15-year maximum, but it was long after your father had been appropriately taken in. Well, I like that you, had a, that you played a part in it, you and Joe. Yes. Yeah. Joe, Joe, uh, Joe did an awful lot during those early years, even beginning before the Flyers even had their first game. He was hired one year before, uh, like a lot of people were, to get the team off the ground and get it noticed in Philadelphia. So he played a very important role. He and, he and Joni still live in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Yep. <laughs> Great people. Great people. Yeah. Yeah. Joe's an amazing guy. We speak highly of him on here. His name comes up a lot. <laughs> I'll bet it does. Yeah, yeah it does. does. Yeah, I think every interview. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank well, we you. Don't want to, yeah, thanks so much, Doc. Uh, appreciate it. Loved hearing your voice. Legendary. Yeah, I, I wish you, you both well on you. Thank you. I, I wish you both well on the various projects. And uh, is that Manhattan over your shoulder there, uh, Corey? Uh, yes, it is. There's okay, no I real, yeah. <laughs> no a, real story behind it. I just, I, you know. I'm, I'm it's a great I, picture. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and over my shoulder is, uh, I, I try to have jerseys that work for, uh, but I didn't know really, I don't have a Flyers jersey or I'd have uh, I'd have hung it up there. So this uh, Flags jersey is from the first professional team I worked for 47 years ago. Uh, the American Eagle is because Port Huron, Michigan is a border town with Sarnia, Ontario. And that's uh, a little bit of a, of a, of a leaf like Canada's maple leaf. Uh, and so the youth hockey team here still uses this jersey and then USA cool. hockey behind. And so that's it. That's what Love I it. have to offer for you today. It's <laughs> so awesome. good to talk to both of you. And I wish you well with this project and all the other things that you're both doing and staying so busy. Oh, thanks, Thank Doc. Thank you so much, Doc. You too. We wish you all the best and can't wait Thank to uh, see you again. Okay. All right, Thank Doc. you. Take Bye-bye. Care, Bye.
But John, know. here's here's a great story. If we got two seconds, um, uh, uh, Plager, the Plager brothers, and um, Bob Plager just passed away. But I always remember there was a fourth Plager brother. So when my dad was playing with the Flyers <clears throat> in the summer, he'd play pro lacrosse here in Ontario, and they'd always play in Peterborough. And the Plager brothers were from Peterborough. So my dad had. Um, brand new Corvette, Stingray, fancy car, and they let him drive to the games. He didn't have to go on the bus with the players. So they get to Peterborough, and it was always a brawl. And my dad brought my mom with him to that game, and <clears throat> brawl breaks out. And so the, the police are there. And so my dad tries to sneak out the back with my mom, grabs her and says, come with me, we'll sneak out the back. And as they're going to the car, someone in the parking lot yells, there's Favel, get him. They came over to lay a beating on my dad, surrounded him and my mom around the car. And one of the Plager brothers was there, stepped in in front of my dad and everybody and told him nobody's touching Doug Favel. And they had, <laughs> they had so much respect for the Plagers, everybody walked away. And my mom said... <laughs> I thought we were dead. Like, and he said, and that's my dad said, he goes, Jesus, thank God for you know, the, the last Plager brother because he popped up and said, nobody's touching oh, the valve and they scattered. 